This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, the Chief Content Officer here and co-host of the Goop Podcast. At the end of June, I'll be heading to London with Gwyneth and the gang for our first wellness summit in the UK. If you want to join us, In Goop Health is the weekend of June 29th, and there are still a few tickets left, which you can scoop at goop.com slash ingoophealth. And if you're curious about the kind of conversations we have at In Goop Health, well, you're listening to the right episode. Today, we're sharing a conversation from our May summit in downtown Los Angeles, where I got to sit down with the amazing Lynn Twist. Before we get into it, though, let me tell you a little bit about our friends at Visit Florida, who we partnered up with to bring you today's episode. If there's anything I've learned from planning vacations with my two-year-old Sam and six-year-old Max in mind, it's that family trips generally fall into two buckets, those that are heavy on scheduled activities and those that are all about taking it easy by the hotel pool. But the most memorable vacations, the ones that leave a lasting impact on everyone involved, fold a little bit of both into the agenda. As a destination, Florida leaves plenty of room for all of that and more. You can visit a world-class children's museum, hit up a water park, dig your toes into 825 miles of pristine beach, and most important of all, just connect and be present with each other. After all, our kids won't be so little forever. To plan your Florida family getaway, head to visitflorida.com. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Lynn Twist has traveled all over the world helping people create healthier relationships with money. She is not your typical financial expert. 
As a global activist, Lynn is dedicated to ending world hunger and aiding poverty. She is the co-founder of the Panchamama Alliance, the founder of the Soul of Money Institute, and the author of The Soul of Money. During our session, we debunked a lot of the myths surrounding money and wealth and perceptions of scarcity. We talked about our relationship with money, why it can haunt us and cause us so much pain and anxiety. Most importantly, Lynn shares how we can change the money culture and go about creating spiritual wealth. I say that enough is the radical, surprising truth about life. And you can't find it or feel it or see it until you let go of this mindset of scarcity, this clamoring, this frantic feeling of needing more. And when you let that go, even for a moment, like when you watch a beautiful sunset or you see the tiny hand of a baby, there's no scarcity. All right, here we go. What's the beginning of any conversation about money in this culture? Well, I have to just do a little bit of a disclaimer because since I wrote The Soul of Money, I always want to make sure that people don't think that I know about their investment portfolio because I don't. We're not talking about that. Yeah, we're not talking about your 501c3. We're not talking about your, you know, I don't know about that stuff. What I've learned about money is from people, I, I like to start this way, from people I used to call poor. I'm really talking about people living in in places like Ethiopia or in India or in Bangladesh. Because as someone working on ending world hunger for a huge part of my life, I had the great privilege of being with people that I used to call poor. And I say used to call them poor because when you get to know them, when you have your hands in the dirt with women in Ethiopia after the famine there, or when you're in Bangladesh with women who have 11 children and are trying to rebuild their home after a tsunami, you realize there is nothing poor about these people. They are resilient, they're creative, they're intelligent, they may not know how to read or write. They're incredibly courageous. In fact, I like to say they exhibit more courage living through one day than you and I are probably going to need in our lifetime. So to call them poor is to define them by their circumstances. Right. And what's poor is their circumstances, not them. In fact, they're whole and complete people, sometimes so strong, so incredibly resilient, so courageous that we really have so much to learn from them. Totally. And they have a kind of inner wealth, a, a strength that they need to call on because the circumstances are so oppressive, so so such tyranny yeah. that they become enormously strong. So I'll say that some of my lessons came from people I used to call poor, which I now call people living in resource-poor circumstances, because the circumstances are poor, but they're not. Mm-hmm. And then also people that I used to call rich. Now, that's a little bit trickier. I was a fundraiser. I still am a fundraiser. I love asking people for money, just in case you want to know. I love asking people for money. I always have to restrain myself from not asking everybody all the time, because I've been a fundraiser all my life and raised hundreds of millions of dollars. So when you're a fundraiser, you're looking for people that you that I used to call rich. But when you get to know people that are in maybe the great privilege of excess resources, there's also all kinds of challenges there too. And if you label them that way, they start thinking they are their trust fund, they are their stock price, they are their savings, they are their their investment portfolio, and that's unhealthy too. They're whole and complete people living in the ebb and flow and often tyranny of excess resources. So my... Teachings about money have come from the people living in resource-poor conditions and people living in massive wealth. 
and then all of us in between. And so my, my money lessons came really from kind of human interaction and learning about the human spirit and how our relationship with money, no matter where we are on that spectrum, is often dysfunctional, mm-hmm. upsetting, filled with anxiety, filled with baggage, filled with pe- people feeling wrong, people feel like they did something they shouldn't have done or they did something that they didn't mean to do or they hurt somebody. Often people have a very, very painful relationship with money. Totally. Not everybody, but, yeah. but most people actually do. Well, I think in our, particularly in the Western culture, we conflate wealth and happiness for some reason. And I think many of us are programmed to believe that when we have enough money or when we have a bigger house or when we have a private plane or when we have a newer car, that that's when we'll feel good. And, you know, I think it's all very circumstance bound. And obviously trauma, particularly in this country, or poverty, particularly in this country, is very traumatic. Mm -hmm. But I lived, you know, in a rural village in Kenya. Oh, you did? Yeah, for a summer, which was an incredible experience when I was in college. And, you know, we went to a bathroom in the hole, and I had jiggers, like the bugs that lay eggs in your feet. Yeah, Yeah, it was great. But but there was no, well, there was nothing even to buy. Mm -hmm. It was was a really interesting experience for me Mm -hmm. in that sense. And I think as a Westerner, when you're with other Westerners sometimes in situations like that where there is poverty, there is so much judgment. Like how could this person live like this? How could this person possibly find joy? Which feels incredibly racist Mm -hmm. and very flawed, I think, as you mentioned, because we put so much pressure on financial wealth. So where where does that come from and how do you change your programming? Well, I think that we live in a money culture Mm -hmm. that actually demeans human life demeans the things that we truly value and exalts money, even the word success when, you know, you ask someone, how is your son or daughter doing? And they say, oh, he or she's real successful. That's the code word for they're making a lot of money. It doesn't necessarily mean they're happy. It doesn't necessarily mean they have a wonderful relationship with the natural world or that they're well-balanced or they're, they're physically fit. It means they have a lot of money. So we've sort of demeaned everything down to that denominator. And it's so narrow and so inaccurate. That's just not who people are. So we live in a what I call the, the culture of money that is filled with all kinds of promises and commitments and, and what I call lies, actually. Yeah. It's kind of a strong word, but I, I consider the money culture filled with lies, particularly in the affluent parts of the world like like here, like our world in the United States, where we actually have made money more important than human life in the way we think and work and the way we behave. And we all know that's not true. Everybody knows that's a, that's a lie. But we won't speak to a, a mother or a father over a money issue sometimes for mm-hmm. years. Right. Or an ex-husband or an ex-wife for you know, years. We'll do custody battles over children over money. We'll do things that are so inconsistent with our humanity in the name of money. And it comes from a culture that has made money more important than human life, money more important than the natural world, and more important than spirit or God. 
And we all know that's a lie, yet we kind of buy into that system. Mm -hmm. And we assign money its power, actually. Yeah. Money is, we, we made it up. We invented I know, it. It's just energy. It's, it's, it's just not energy. a thing. That's what's so strange about yeah. it. Yeah, it, it was invented, money historians say, somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,500 years ago in a setting in the community, in the village, in the places where we lived in, in small groups of 100 or 120 people to facilitate the sharing of goods and resources so that, you know, if you needed a pig and I had corn, then we would trade. Or if you had a pig and I was a cobbler, I'd need to find someone who had corn to give you corn so I could fix their shoes. You know, it got complicated. So we invented money really to ensure that everyone everywhere in the community had everything they needed and wanted. It was designed to facilitate the sharing of goods and resources. And that's a long time ago now. I mean, you know, in big history, it's fairly recent, but about 3,500, 4,500 years ago, it became part of civilization. And it was really pure in the beginning to facilitate making sure everybody had what they needed, this, this tokenization of things. But then when banking and interest started being invented and people started making money with money and withholding money mm -hmm. to make more money for themselves and withholding it from other people and the whole system of interest, et cetera, and everything we know today, now money's used to marginalize, to control, to often produce on the backs of other people. I mean, it, it's so totally. far afield from the way right. it was originally invented. So we live in a money culture that demeans human life, makes money more important than human life, makes money more important than the natural world. We will cut down an entire rainforest for money. We will pollute the very water we drink for money. We will pollute the air we breathe and that future generations are gonna depend on for money. And it's, even though we're struggling with that now finally, it's still legitimate if there's enough money involved. And so I think this assigning all this power to money, which we do. I mean, money really, as I say, we just invented it. It's just, it's a symbol. It's, yeah. it's innocent. It's a, it's a current that runs through every life. That's why it's called a currency. I say in my book that it's like water. You know, water flows through everywhere. And when you think of money like water, it's a little more accurate because it is a current. Mm -hmm. It is an energy, but it's innocent. And yeah. we load it with our baggage. And if you think about water, when it's moving, when it's flowing, it purifies, it makes things grow, it cleanses. Yeah. But when it's hoarded or held or stuck, it becomes stagnant and toxic to yeah. those who are holding on to it, just like water. I mean, money yeah. does that too. So if we can think of it as flow rather than an amount, if we can think of it as something that's a carrier rather than something we're trying to add up and accumulate, actually it flows more easily to us and from us in a way that's healthier. Yeah. I remember when I first had kids and I was like doing some back-of-the-envelope math about expenses and nanny and all of that. And a friend said to me, it was an offhand comment, but it was, it really helped. She was like, it's all liquid. Right. <laughs> and in her experience, she was like, it just, it'll flow. It'll come. You'll figure it out. It's not. And I think that that's, it's not the whole, like the minute you're like, oh, yeah, like yeah. that tightness. Well, the biggest 
lie in the culture I think about money is the lie of scarcity. Yeah. And I and I call it a lie with some respect because I'm talking about an unconscious, unexamined condition of thinking. I'm not talking about real scarcity, which it absolutely exists. So I've, as I said, worked on hunger and poverty. I work now on the in the Amazon with indigenous people. But for many years, I, I worked in Ethiopia, Mozambique, Ghana, Senegal, Bangladesh, India. You know, I, I, I know very intimately that there are places where people don't have enough food and water and opportunity. I'm not talking about that or them. I'm talking about the unconscious, unexamined belief system that comes even before thinking or deliberation, an unconscious, unexamined belief system that <gasps> there's not enough. Mm-hmm. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. There's not enough sex. There's not enough vacation. There's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough hours in the night. There's not enough sleep. There's not enough available men over 40. <laughs> True. <laughs> but if you think about it, we have a there's not enough, it's not enough, there's not enough, it's not enough culture. Right. And as powerful and beautiful as marketing and advertising is, it also kind of has us by the throat because we actually believe it's not enough, there's not enough, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, starts to settle in in a culture that constantly tells you you're not okay until you acquire this next thing. You're not okay until you have more of something. And so I call this the condition or the lie of scarcity, scarcity thinking. You know, there's a, a, a way of living that, that I'm very familiar with, I'm sure everybody here is, that Many, 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 many people, maybe not you enlightened, wonderful people here, but most people wake up in the morning and the first thought they have is, <gasps> I didn't get them sleep. Right. And it's not really related to when they went to bed. It's just kind of an automatic pilot. There's not enough. It's not enough litany. And then after, <gasps> I didn't get enough sleep, you look at the clock and then, I don't have enough time, especially those of us kids. Yeah. And then there's, I don't have enough to wear. And then there's, I don't have enough time to eat breakfast. And then I don't have enough space for the kids to get them to school. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And then the first meeting, the second meeting, the third meeting, the fourth meeting is about what we don't have enough of. It's kind of the litany of our culture. And then all the way through the day, I don't have enough time to eat lunch. I don't have enough time to get the kids. I didn't finish my emails. I didn't finish that. Meetings are too short. We didn't get it all done. And then the last thought most people have before they go to bed is, "Ah, I didn't get enough done. So our life is kind of bookended by thoughts of scarcity, which kind of gets into the very psyche of the human being, particularly women. And it starts to be, I am not enough. I am not enough. So I think it's the source that thinking is the source of, of much of the problems that we face in the world. And then the second, I call them the three toxic myths of scarcity. First, there's not enough. Second, more is better. More of anything, more of everything is better. More this, more that, more square feet in our house, more, more, more jeans, more black pants, more, you know, more, 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 more. And it's sort of an endless, an endless litany. More, 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 more. We find ourselves getting more of what we already have all the time. And that is a, the way I like to talk about more is better is there's a, a symbol of that for me is the huge industry of storage, which huh. is, <laughs> you know, here in yeah. L.A. and in San Francisco where I live, there's just thousands of people without a place to live. I mean, the homeless situation is so out of control. 
Yet, we're not building houses for those people. We're building houses for the stuff we can't fit in the houses that we already have. Yeah. So more is better is the kind of second toxic myth, I think, in this mindset of scarcity. And then the third toxic myth I call, that's just the way that it is. And when you think that's just the way that it is, then you, you, you're resigned. You give up. You kind of surrender. You, you relinquish your power, and you just kind of buy in to a system that says there's not enough to go around, more of anything and everything is better, and that's just the way that it is. And it's a vicious, vicious, vicious cycle. It ends up really robbing us of any satisfaction, any sense of fulfillment, or just fleeting moments when you get more of something, then it leads you pretty soon to lack, yeah. and then you need more again. So it's a, I'm talking about a mindset. I'm not saying we, don't, we shouldn't buy things over there, <laughs> you know, in that beautiful indoor place. I'm not saying we don't belong. There aren't things that really will help us feel better about ourselves that we need to purchase. But I'm, I think there's this constant, unyielding, you know, tyranny of believing there's not enough to go around. And the second half of that sentence, if I can keep going, yeah. is there's not enough to go around. And the belief system is that somewhere, someone is always going to be left out. Yeah. There's not enough to go around, and someone somewhere is always going to be left out. And if you unconsciously believe that, then it makes total sense to accumulate way more than you need, way, way more than you need, to ensure that you and yours, whoever you consider that to be, are not among those who are left out. And you kind of then, even if it's at these people's expense, you're you really need to, it's noble, it's responsible to accumulate more than you need, and you'll help them someday when you can, when you have way more than you need and you know you're safe. But in the meantime, you've got to, even if it's a little bit at their expense, you need to accumulate more than you need. And that's the source of a us and them kind of world in our minds. Yeah. That's just a little bit about this thing I call the lie of scarcity. And it's turned us from citizens people who are responsible, the name citizen means he or she who's responsible for the well-being of the community, the well-being of the state, the well-being of the, of the country, the world. It's a beautiful word, citizen, to consumers. And yes, consumer has a valuable meaning, but it actually means he or she who takes, depletes, diminishes, or destroys. And now that's what we call ourselves, actually. I mean, across the board, not just when we're buying things that we need. Right. We've, we've sort of devolved ourselves from citizens to consumers. And that's yeah. the way we are thought of. That's the way we're marketed to by companies, but also by, by the people who govern us. By our, our, that's how people size each other up almost now. So it's very, we're so caught in this, what I call the mindset of scarcity, that's inconsistent with our humanity, our natural generosity, our natural knowing. So, and that's really kind of the money system's done that to yeah. us. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. 
If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Just a second, we're taking a quick break. After the ice cream cones have been licked, the seashells collected, and the hotel snack bars ransacked, family trips are really about creating moments you'll remember forever. This makes sense intuitively, but I started thinking more intentionally about how we create these kinds of moments after I read a book by Chip and Dan Heath called The Power of Moments. I later got to interview Chip about it here on the Goop podcast. When it comes to vacations, we all want memories we can hold on to long after the suitcases have been unpacked. Everyone's ideal vacation looks different, of course, but for my family of four, the perfect vacation is a bit of a grab bag, and I think this is true for a lot of other families too. And that's what makes Florida the ultimate family destination, both because there's a lot to do and because there are plenty of chances to create some unforgettable moments. Florida cities offer any combination of cool museums, fresh seafood, and miles upon miles of beaches for my toddler and six-year-old to let loose. And then there's Disney World. Heard of it? But ultimately, a destination that brings us together where we are not glued to our screens and not replying to emails makes my husband and me happy. And Max and Sam are pretty thrilled too. In other words, Florida is the kind of destination we start planning a return trip to during the flight home. To get more inspiration and tips for planning a family trip to Florida, head to visitflorida.com. Spring cleaning is coming a little late to the Luna and Fismer household this year, but I'm very excited about it. I love a good Marie Kondo session, and a full cleanup feels particularly necessary after the season we've just had in Los Angeles. Yes, we had a season. Yes, it rained as much as I've ever seen here, which means two things. The wildflowers blooming right now are next level, and we've had a lot more indoor time than usual with our cats. Maybe your Achilles heel is pet dander, or maybe it's pollen, but if you've ever felt like it's impossible to really do a clean sweep at home, you should check out LG's line of AFA certified appliances. For the uninitiated, that's the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America, and LG came up with a suite of products that passes muster. There's the PureCare 360 degree air purifier, there's the front and top load washing machines, and then there's the LG Styler, which uses steam to refresh all sorts of fabrics. In my world, this could be anything from my son's favorite stuffed animal, Bunny, to sports gear, to bedding, to a more delicate G-label piece. The LG Styler steam clothing care system uses just water, no chemicals, and then powerful yet gentle steam to refresh all of these things. It reduces odors, allergens, and even releases light wrinkles in fabrics. Give it 20 minutes and you're refreshed and ready, or go deep with the one-hour sanitizing cycle. To learn more about the LG Styler and the rest of LG's asthma and allergy-friendly certified home appliances, just head to lgusa.com 
backslash home free. That's lgusa.com backslash home free. Okay, break's over. Let's get back to my chat with Lynn Twist. It's, I think, complicated by the fact that when you do have enough, as I'm sure everyone here to some degree has enough, there's shame, right? There's shame and wealth and accumulating wealth, even though I think we all are conditioned to feel like we don't have enough. Yeah. And so I've seen it in, in some of my friends where there's this probably not even articulated number or formulated number, but this paralysis around doing anything. It's too hard when you're like, I, I really want those earrings and this is what's happening at the border. It's really hard, I mm. think, for all of us to separate, not shame ourselves, and continue to participate. Right. Yeah. I don't know how, how do you, because I know you had a life that was full of money. How do you help people have that balance or understand, like, yes, have this beautiful day, buy a beautiful dress, and participate in the wider world? Yeah, that's just an awesome question. Can you Here's give the- us permission? <laughs> Well, here's the answer to that question. I don't know. Yeah. I really don't know. But I will share with you that if you're in touch with the pain and suffering in this world, and you're really willing to open your heart to that, you will do something about it. You will do what's yours to do. Mm. And in order to do what's yours to do and do it well, you need to take care of yourself too. So I've been a what's called a pro-activist. I call it a pro-activist all my life, not an activist against, but an activist for. I call that standing in a vision that's so powerful that you are standing in the vision. You know what's in the way. You're not afraid to address it, but you're not against it. You're willing to dismantle it with respect, like hospicing the death of the old structures and systems that no longer serve us. Hospice their natural death. They're unsustainable. They're they're dying. Let them die naturally while we midwife the birth of the new structures and systems that will serve us. So the pain of the world is so great. It's so in our face. It's so hopefully in our hearts that there is room for everybody's participation in that, financially and in every other way. And in many ways, that is the source of prosperity. I talk about this distinction of enough, Mm -hmm. which is very hard to find in a consumer culture because... We race right past enough. We don't even know that it happened. We're, we're racing towards new, more. Yeah, you set so, a new baseline. Yeah, we don't know. There is, I mean, where's enough? You, who knows? And I say that enough is the radical, surprising truth about life. And you can't find it or feel it or see it until you let go of this mindset of scarcity, this clamoring, this frantic feeling of, needing more. And when you let that go, even for a moment, like when you watch a beautiful sunset or you see the tiny hand of a baby, there's no scarcity. Mm-hmm. You know, really, we live in a world of absolute, total sufficiency. And sufficiency or enough, I distinguish from abundance. I love abundance, don't get me wrong, but I'm suggesting that abundance in a mindset of scarcity turns out to be excess goes into landfills, Mm -hmm. is the source of so much waste, why our goodwills are filled with more stuff than they can, they're turning people away now. But in the mindset of scarcity, it's, 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 
abundance is, is way, way, way more than you need. And then there's not enough over here. It seems like enough would be somewhere in between, but I'm talking about an enough that's not actually an amount right. of anything. It's a state of being. If you let go of trying to get more of what you don't really need, which is what we're kind of brainwashed to want more of, you just let go of that for a moment. It frees up oceans and oceans of energy that's all tied up in the chase to turn and pay attention to what you already have. When you pay attention to what you already have, when you nourish it, when you appreciate it, when you share it, it expands. So uh, it's hard to remember, but I'll say a shorter version of that is what you appreciate, appreciates. Mm. What you appreciate, appreciates. So when you're in what I call the radical, surprising truth of the experience of enough, which is that the universe meets us perfectly all the time, gives us exactly what we need all the time, not in an amount of anything, but in the path that we walk, even the death of a loved one, even a divorce, sometimes is exactly what we need to find our independence. If we can see that we get exactly what we need, we get enough, that's this distinction I'm making, that's not an amount of anything, but the recognition that the universe is giving us exactly what we need. Yeah. When you realize that, when you're in touch with that, this kind of wave of fulfillment becomes available and gratitude and appreciation and thankfulness and experience of freedom and love is possible even with money. Yeah. Yeah. And don't you say essentially that you feel belonging rather than your belongings? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think why we consume so much of what we don't need is because we're lonely. Yeah. And we haven't created that experience of belonging that we crave, so we go after these belongings, kind of. But when we're in touch with, and I, I know everybody sitting in this audience and everybody in this wonderful event and everybody in Los Angeles and all the way out, when we really think about the friends we have, the wonderful place we live, the access we have, our parents, our children, our health, our well-being, when you really get in touch with that, when you appreciate it, when you experience the great fullness, I call it, of our lives, the gratefulness or the great fullness mm. of our lives. I like that. That's when we're in touch with what I call enough. And it's always there. It's always waiting for us. And it's kind of covered over by the consumer culture that demands more. And so this is all kind of doesn't sound like it's so much about money, but it works with money too. Yeah. <laughs> it does work with money too. And so generosity is the source of pro prosperity. When people are being generous, when you, when you help someone, when you help a friend, when you make a, a contribution to something that really touches your heart, that's when you feel, that's when you feel your prosperity, not when you get more. When you're sharing is when you feel prosperity. That's yeah. the source of prosperity is generosity and partnership and collaboration. It's not more. No, that's yeah. so true. I yeah. mean, that's, that is that feeling of sort of grace and benevolence and the, that acknowledgement, like, I have enough, I can give you right. part of it. I love sort of the, one of the practical or tactical things that you teach, which is that the best way to understand 
what you value in your life is to look at your credit card statement. <laughs> yeah. It's true, though. Yeah. Mine is diapers and <laughs> groceries. But how, how did that impact your own life? Well, let's see. I, 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 um, I just say that when I looked at what I was actually spending money on, the content of it rather than how much and, you know, were we short or do we have more? I, I began to see what I, what I value and I questioned it. I questioned it. I started really, I mean, I used to really be into when we, we had a, a kind of a, a, quite a measure of wealth, my husband and I, we were pursuing things that really weren't that much our thing. So this is when I was young married, you know, we were, he was, you know, making more money than we possibly could spend, and we had little kids, and we started thinking that we needed to know a lot about wine. You know, we didn't, we liked wine, but, <laughs> but we didn't really, you know, we didn't really care that much about it, but we, we thought we needed to know about wine, and that we needed to know about art, and we had to collect art, so we had to join this group that taught us about art. And, you know, we wanted to go camping with our kids, but that wasn't cool, so we left our kids behind, and we went to Provence, you know, because that's what was cool. You know, we, we kind of got into a, a way of using our resources that was inconsistent with what we really, really, really cared about because the kind of culture told us we had to be cool. I took the EST, the old EST training, which is way, way back there in the 70s, for those of you who are a little bit in my age group, and it just hit me over the head like a two-by-four, and I realized we're, just, we're living somebody else's life. This isn't, this isn't what we care about. And I, you know, people have many ways of waking up, coming to this wonderful event, meditation. That really woke me up. And I realized we're, we're, on, we're on a trajectory that doesn't belong to us. It's, it's, it's not who we are. And, and we began to reallocate our resources to things we really cared about. And that's when we got into, that's when I really got into ending world hunger. That's when we created a foundation. That's when we saw the, the absolute beauty of philanthropy. That's when we started raising our kids to volunteer, to share their financial resources. To We started raising our children in a whole other way. We started living a, a completely different life, 10,000 times more fulfilling. Yeah. And I'm so grateful for that wake-up call. And I, you know, I don't fault people for amassing huge fortunes because I'm a fundraiser. I go and talk to them all the time at the same time. Give money after we're done. One of, one of my gifts, I think, is to lift the veil for people so that they see what a difference they can make with their life, with their time, with their energy, with their money. It's a privilege to do that. No, it's amazing. I, yeah, wine is something I'm like, I don't want to know anything about I like six ninety nine wine from Costco. I'm just gonna keep it that way. It's better than Franzia. Does Franzia still exist? But I love people who love wine, and I learn from them. So if you love wine, you're fine. I mean, for some people, that's their thing. It just wasn't mine. I can't be my thing. That would be dangerous. What's ecological credit card debt? Because I think this is a really resonant and important concept. Well, let's say back in nineteen eighty. Four, five, six, seven ecological economists said that we were over what's called the one earth line. The one earth line means we started using more resources than the earth can regenerate in 1987, right around there. And ecological economists were kind of shocked by that and there was warning signs going out. We're now using more resources than the earth can naturally regenerate. 
And then by 1997, we were, we were using 20% more resources than the Earth can regenerate. And ecological economists predicted a huge economic crisis in 2007 and 8. Hmm. 20 years ahead of time. They said it'll take about 20 years for the economy to crash because eco, eco, the economy is totally based on our ecological resources. We now use 60% to 70% more resources than the earth can regenerate. So we are in severe, profound ecological debt, and that is the source of the huge, unconfrontable economic deficit of the United States. You know, we're the richest country in the world, yet we have the largest debt in the history of the world. It's, it's unconfrontable. And how we got out of the economic crisis was by borrowing money, by borrowing more money. So we are, until we live within our ecological means, we keep heading for more economic crises, and the big one is going to come pretty soon unless we change our ways. And it's, it's, I said this on Wall Street because, you know, I did a TED Talk on Wall Street and this was not the way people there were thinking. They were thinking, you know, banking malpractice, no regulations, you know, the whole uh, mortgage crisis. But if you go all the way back to the source, everything, this couch, my pants, this stage, this microphone is made from the earth. Yeah. And we're using more resources than the earth can regenerate. And we've, we, we just can't keep doing that. So is that where we should transfer all of our feelings of scarcity? <laughs> wow. Well, what we need to do is move into a different relationship with the natural world. One that's, that's so beautifully displayed here. A deeper partnership with the natural world. A, a recognition that it's not there for our use, but rather we're part of it, mm -hmm. and a kind of love that uh, for Mother Nature, re realizing she is, like no kidding, our mother, and we can reverse global warming. It's absolutely doable. Global warming is reversible. That's a kind of complete revelation from the new work of Paul Hawken and Drawdown. Mm -hmm. We can reverse it. We don't need to mitigate it and be afraid of it. We can reverse it. It's not happening to us, it's happening for us. Mm. It's feedback. It's fantastic, powerful, natural feedback. And I think when we really get it, and the mother, mother will do whatever she needs to to us for us to get it, it will be um, the biggest and most profound transformation our species has ever, ever had. And hopefully we don't need to wait too long that we can move a little more quickly. And I think that's kind of what this whole thing is about in many yeah. ways. No, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like if she's not getting people's attention, she invariably will. But I think if you look at our president, who's a perfect example of someone who's venerated for wealth, if he's, well, I mean, I'm not sure if he has any money, but... <laughs> he but has you, debt. We know he has you know, debt. We know he has debt. But, or you, and you think about what's been happening across the world, I think we're at a, it seems like we're at a point soon of people waking up. Yeah, I, I would say that the current occupant of the White House is, we focus too much on him, we miss the point of what has shown up. Yeah. It's like everything that was under the radar, that was unacknowledged, that was unspoken, that was not being addressed, is now up to be addressed. In, I say it's up to be addressed because we're ready to address it. Mm 
Yeah. And we have the courage and the consciousness and the depth now with all the people who are meditating, all the spiritual practices that are just flooding uh, humanity. We have the strength and the, the courage and the gut to address it. And that's why it's showing up. Rather than there's something wrong, it's, no. it's an acknowledgement of how capable we are as a human species to transform the conditions yeah. in which we live. I like to say that it feels like we have cystic acne and we're finally getting the facial that we need. <laughs> and it's painful and ugly and there's more healing that needs to be done, but it was always there. Well, let me say another thing because this is primarily women and, and um, this is also really about men. I, I think that you and I are sitting here and all of us are living in what I call the Sophia century, which is the 21st century, a century when women will take our rightful role in co-equal partnership with men and the world will come back into balance. Yes. And this, is the, this is the prophecy of the Cherokee people. They said that the Sophia century would be the century when something really miraculous would happen. This is a long, long ago prophecy being told about right now. And they say that humanity has two great wings, a male wing and a female wing. And the male wing has become so extended and so strong and so powerful and has become almost over-muscular while the female wing in humanity, in men and women, hasn't yet been fully extended. So the male wing has become almost violent to keep the bird of humanity flying. Mm. And the bird of humanity has been flying in circles for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. And the prophecy says in the 21st century, the Sophia century, the female wing in everyone will fully extend and the male wing will begin to relax and the bird of humanity will stop flying in circles and will soar. So I say that's what this whole thing is about. Thanks for listening to my chat with Lynn. You can learn more about her work at thesoulofmoney.org and pick up a copy of her book, The Soul of Money. Now over to GP for today's AMA. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Do you like to camp or hike in the woods? Was it a positive experience? Well, I'm not a major camper, I would say, but I love to hike and I love to be in the woods and I love nature. I, I think I would try glamping, which I have yet to do, but I have camped before and I've slept in the woods, I've slept on the beach. And I have to say, that there are aspects of camping that I really love, which is kind of being outside in nature and sleeping on the ground. But I always kind of am longing to get back to a real bed. Thank you, GP. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. On Tuesday, GP will be on the podcast with an extraordinary writer and thinker. Don't miss it. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.